I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13. If you are new with us today, you're picking us up in the middle of a sermon series to the book of 1 Samuel, entitled, Who Will Be King? And this morning we cover a rather large section of text, two whole chapters of the Bible. And so I'm not going to read it its entirety to you, uh, but I'll be referring to it throughout. So it would be great if you could open up there with me and follow along as we go. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you and praise you that you continue to show yourself mighty. Not only in creation, not only in the exercising of your power from a distance, but how you change hearts and minds and lives like Bobby's, like ours. We pray now that you continue to shape us by your word for your glory. Amen. Donald Cash was a 54-year-old man from Utah who was a larger-than-life figure and who loved a good adventure. His love for the outdoors and his love for adventure led him to pursue his hobby, which took him away from his family quite often as he attempted to accomplish the great mountaineering feat of the Seven Summits. Now, the Seven Summits is a reference to the highest mountain on each of the seven continents of the world. And for someone to achieve the Seven Summits is indeed a great accomplishment. And until last week, Donald Cash had climbed six of the seven summits of the continents. In December, the software engineer from Utah quit his job so that he could focus on his dream of conquering the seventh summit, which is the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. Mount Everest, as you know, is nestled between Tibet and Nepal and has an altitude of 29,029 feet above sea level. And on Wednesday of this past week, Donald Cash was one of approximately 200 people on the mountain attempting to make the summit while they had a short window of really good weather. And after laboring for hours, and after navigating the near impossible conditions, and after functioning with depleted physical faculties because of the altitude, he did it. He finally reached the summit. And as he did, you can imagine the sense of overwhelmedness and joy that overtook him as he stopped to take a couple of photographs. And no longer was he there to take those few photographs than through a combination of altitude sickness or perhaps a possible heart attack, Donald Cash fell. And after attempting to revive him for a number of minutes, his Sherpas declared that he had died. History will remember him as one of the few people who have climbed the seven summits. But due to his pursuit of adventure, his grandchildren will never know him. You see, there can be sadness in the midst of success. 
you can accomplish a magnificent feat, but still have failure in the grand scheme of things. And this is the way that we could describe 1 Samuel 13 and 14. These two chapters of the Bible give us a historical summary of the kingship of Saul. Now we're going to hear more details about Saul's reign in a little while, but these two chapters contain three particular stories that define Saul's reign as the king. And they conclude with a glowing review of his reign. If you look toward the end of chapter 14, you'll see in verse 47 and and 48 that when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. And it moves down and says, wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. A glowing review through the eyes of history. But it's interesting then that the three stories that we're going to explore together this morning cast Saul in a rather different light. A very negative light, highlighting the shortcomings of this king, and particularly the shortcomings in contrast to the faith of his son, Jonathan. So how can you have three stories casting him in a negative light, while the conclusion of his life is a very positive one? When you take all of them together, we see one main point that I want to challenge you with this morning, and it is this. You can have great success in the eyes of history while failing miserably in the eyes of God. History could look upon you with great success all the while you could fail miserably in the eyes of God. And that's what we see here with Saul. And so if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, we see in 13, we see the first story beginning in 13. We might summarize the beginning of it by saying the description of the nation of Israel and their fighting force against their foes, the Philistines, is described this way. Israel had 3,000 soldiers among them, 2,000 of which were with Saul, 1,000 of which were with his son, Jonathan. And right from the very beginning, we see Jonathan accomplishes a great victory as him and his 1,000 soldiers defeat a garrison of Philistines. And for the moment, things are looking up for the people of Israel. But in response, if you look at verse 5, it describes how the Philistines would react. And it says the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and camped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. What looked like a great success at the beginning has now very quickly been flipped on its head. Because 3,000 versus a number of soldiers that are greater than the sand of the seashore causes great terror in the camp of Israel. The soldiers were scared. Many of them hid among the rocks. 
Some of them fled out of town, abandoning their post in the military. And the pressure on Saul is mounting. His army is getting smaller. And the pressure is getting greater for this king. And so Saul went to Gilgal, as Samuel has previously instructed him to do. And when he got there, Samuel the prophet told him to wait there for seven days until he arrived. And when Samuel arrived, this prophet of God would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of Saul and on behalf of the people. And you could almost hear the panic in Saul's voice as you try to put yourself in the situation. The camp is there at Gilgal. The soldiers are thinning out. Some are hiding, some are running, some are terrified but remaining. And it's day five. (laughs) And Saul says, hey, have you seen Samuel? He's supposed to be here by now. I can hear the drumbeats of the Philistines in the distance. And it's day six. And Saul grabs one of the messengers and says, have you seen Samuel around here? It's evening now. And the roar of the fire is creating a glow in the distance. The Philistines are upon us. And day seven arrives. And Saul looks to the camp as he wanders around looking for the prophet who said he would be there by the seventh day. And after he finishes his breakfast, he decides that he needs to take action. The battle is upon us. The people are scattering. We need to seek God's favor and we need to seek it right now. And so we look to verse 9 at what happens. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You can really feel it for Samuel in one sense, right? I mean, the situation is at its most dire. And when it's at its most dire, he decides to act. Even though he's acting in disobedience, you can feel how his back was up against the wall in this way. And so in the last minute, in an attempt to gain God's favor, in an attempt to gain God's blessing, he performs the sacrifice instead of waiting for the prophet to perform it on his behalf. And it even says... He forced himself to do it. And just as he completes it, Samuel shows up. On the seventh day, just as he had promised. And the next words that he gives to Saul are haunting. He says in verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he has commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you to do. And so here's the main point. Disregarding the word of the Lord can lead you into decisions that look good in the moment, but are truly bad. (laughs) Take note of that. God sets out his works and his ways through his word. In the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to the people and to the kings by the mouth of the prophet. By doing what he did, Saul disregarded the word of the Lord. The king does not offer sacrifices. The priests do. And Samuel was a prophet and a priest. He disregarded the word of the Lord because it seemed to make sense at the time. It looked good to him at the time. But the result is truly bad. Friends, you are constantly challenged in our time to ask the question of whether or not the word of the Lord is truly applicable to you or whether it is not some sort of distant document. Is what God lays out for you in his word realistic? (laughs) Is it helpful? Is it relevant? Many would say that it's antiquated and the way that you try to follow God today is through new revelations that he gives to you throughout time. For Saul, it seems that in this particular instance, it was nearly impossible to trust and obey God through his word. The numbers were against him. His own people were abandoning him. Time had nearly expired. And you need to know, friends, that there will be seasons in your life where it feels nearly impossible to trust and obey God through his word. Our internal feelings might lead us in a different direction. Our instincts might go against God's word. What we experience in particular circumstances might lead us to think it's impossible to obey him. When your hormones challenge obeying God's word in sexual purity until marriage. And the culture says that sex is the real true expression of love to one another. How could you possibly obey God's word in that moment? When your fear of paying your bills challenges your trust that the God who provides for the sparrows will provide for you as well. It might feel impossible to trust God's word. When your emotions or your anger get the best of you and you seek revenge because of them and you want to jump the line of God's justice, it might feel impossible to trust his word. Because trusting God is really difficult sometimes. But here's something to remember. Disregarding the word of the Lord can lead you into decisions that look good in the moment, but are truly bad in the outcome. And the result for Saul is just that. He thinks he's doing the best that he can. So he disregards God's word. And his kingdom, as a result, is effectively over. 
He will remain the king, physically speaking, for a number of years, but his line would not inherit the throne because God wanted a king who had a heart for him. Secondly, we see at the end of chapter 13 that the result of this sin is that Israel is completely overrun by the Philistines and subdued by them. The chapter ends with the Philistine raiders running rampant among the villages of Israel. And the lands of the Israelites were suppressed to the point where they simply aren't even allowed to have weapons. They can only have farming implements, and only farming implements that are dull. And if they want to get them sharpened, they actually have to go over the border to Philistine to get them sharpened as a true sign of their oppression and a great little way to make money on the side. And we see the first glimpse of what's happening here. Saul, the great mighty king, might have success in the eyes of history while failing miserably in the eyes of God. The second story turns our attention to chapter 14, and we see a little bit more positive note. We see a great contrast between the faith or lack thereof of Saul and the faith of his son, Jonathan. Chapter 14 recounts how Jonathan and his armor bearer leave the camp of the Israelite army, and they go and attack some Philistines, and the two of them defeat a garrison are about 20 Philistine soldiers. And so we're going to pick it up and read in verse 6. And the first five verses are describing where they are, that they're in the middle of the mountains and they're going to a certain place and they're crawling among the rocks. And it says in verse 6 that Jonathan said to the young man who's car- who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of, to the, garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after them. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And at the first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men, with, as it, within, as it were, a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And so in contrast to Saul's lack of faith, 
here you get just a glimpse into Jonathan's great faith. And at first glance, it might just look like a stupid plan. <laughs> Two on 20. Among the rocks. Let's see what they say. Let's see what happens. But this isn't just the arrogance of youth that is displayed here. In fact, the true daring of Jonathan's action is that he dares to trust that God could do something among them. And the reason for Jonathan's great faith here is that he knows the truth about who God is and what God does. Look at verse 6 again. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is Jonathan's way of saying, we worship God and God can do anything. So why would we shrink back? He's the eternal God of the universe. He doesn't need a thousand people. He doesn't need a hundred people. He could actually do it with just a few people. So let's go and see what he might do. He's the anti-Saul in this moment. His trust is not in himself, it's in the Lord, whom he knows can do anything, who can accomplish anything. He knows that God has infinite amounts of power. And over and over again, we see this theme throughout the Bible. And I think the Bible reminds us of it so many times because we are so quick to forget. <laughs> Our memories are short. That this God that we worship, that we serve, is truly infinite in his power. Genesis 18, 14. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things. Jeremiah 32, 17. Nothing is too hard for you. Luke 1, 37. Nothing will be impossible for God. Matthew 19, 26. With God, all things are possible. Mark 14.36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And even though Jonathan recognizes God's infinite power, he still doesn't presume that God is going to use it upon his beck and call. He takes a step of faith. He sees how God responds and continues, and then he goes even further. And so in this way, he's has this incredible submitting to God's will in the moment. He has true faith, great faith in the infinite power of God, but an expression to submit to his ongoing and unfolding will. And so here's the main point of story number two. True faith is trusting that God can accomplish his purpose regardless of how things appear and no matter what the odds. True faith is trusting that God will accomplish his purpose no matter how things appear or what the odds are. Augustine once wrote that faith is to believe what we do not see and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. Many of you might have heard the name George Mueller before. He was a great missionary who is known for his faith. And he says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for God in, in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. And friends, there's a lot of different ways that we can apply these ideas, or the 
bolstering of our faith in our daily lives. There's a lot of ways that we can say, man, God, I know you can do all things, and I need to trust that you're going to accomplish your purposes with my children, who I don't know what to do with, or in my marriage, which is really hard, or in my work situation that is seemingly impossible, or or on down the line, we could apply this in so many different ways, because it's all-encompassing of your life. (laughs) Let me apply it in just one specific way for us today. I want to encourage you to have faith in God and therefore be a bold witness for him. So many of us are simply afraid to share about what God has done in our life. About the good news of Jesus forgiving sins. About how God can change you right now and give you all of eternity. So many of us are afraid of that, and that in and of itself is a lack of faith. (laughs) We don't want to look foolish. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to lose friends. Culturally, we might even feel like the odds are stacked against us. We might feel like God doesn't want to work, or even can't work in this way, but have faith. (laughs) Have faith. That God can accomplish his purposes regardless of how things look. Have faith that the Holy Spirit of God is doing his work in the world. And what is that work? Right now the Spirit of God is working in invisible ways in the hearts and minds and lives of people all around you. Some of whom he's preparing to come to know him. To put their faith in Jesus. It might be imperceptible to you in the moment, but that is the work of God that you can have faith in. Have faith that God wants to save people. And have faith that he wants you to participate in it. True faith is trusting that God can accomplish his purpose regardless of how things look or no matter what the odds God can do anything. And Jonathan's faith is displayed in that his knowledge of God causes him to act and God gives him victory. And here's the result in verse 15. We read it a moment ago. God acted so much so, just out of the faith of this one man and his armor bearer, that the panic broke out in the camp of the Philistines, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Because God worked, regardless of how it looked. Here we see the next glimpse of how you can have great success in the eyes of the world or the eyes of history while failing miserably in the eyes of God. And you could also reverse that. You could be failing greatly in the eyes of the world but have great success in the eyes of God. We move to the third story. Moving from the second half of chapter 14, verse 16, and to the end. And we're back to Saul. 
seeing that Jonathan had gone off to battle, and that battle was indeed upon them again, Saul calls in his panic for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to him. And so the priests bring him the Ark of the Covenant. And what he's going to do with the Ark of the Covenant, we don't really know. It doesn't really say. The priest brings it and the Ark of the Covenant is there. And, and at that moment, he hears and he realizes the panic of the Philistine camp in the distance. He probably feels the earth itself shaking, as it says in verse 15. And so he calls off the priest, go put the ark back away. We're going into battle and we're going right now. He calls all the men and they go and they chase the Philistines down, at least those in that area. And as the day went on and as the battle raged, he sensed that his men were getting tired. Philistines were on the run from those particular garrisons. The Israelites were in pursuit. And so Saul decides that he is going to try to motivate them. And he tries to motivate them by making an oath. And this is the oath, verse 24. Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And so none of them had tasted food. What a contrast. Jonathan says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And Saul says, I want my vengeance and I want it now. (laughs) And in an attempt to sound spiritual, he makes an oath. But the oath backfires. His son Jonathan didn't hear the oath. And so while they were walking through the woods and there was honey at the ready, Jonathan had some honey, and his eyes became bright, the text says. He was revived because of his food, highlighting the foolishness of the oath of his father. And secondly, it says that when the Jewish men indeed finished the battle, And the vengeance to Saul was given. They conquered a local village and they took all the animals of that village that they could. And they were so famished with hunger that they slaughtered a number of them and began to grow them. And in their haste, they began to consume them. And it says, they ate them with the blood. Israelite men weren't allowed to eat meat with the blood disobedience to God's law. And so Saul's false piety led both his son and his soldiers into sin. The man who lacks faith in God's word, who nearly starves his troops, is now left at the end of the chapter attempting to offer sacrifices again, like a priest but he's not a priest. (laughs) And he does so, so that his soldiers might be saved. And he turns to have his son killed because his son violated the oath. And it says that the people of Israel rose up against him and they ransomed Jonathan for themselves. And so here's the main point. False piety 
leads to twisted expressions of faith. Piety is reverence or devotion to God that's displayed through certain types of actions. False piety is when a person appears reverent to God through the types of actions that they do, but the actions themselves are not actually pleasing to God. It's, they're falsely pious. Don't eat any food until we get our vengeance. False piety. Wear certain clothes if you're going to be a follower of God. False piety. And we could give dozens of examples of false piety in our time. One of the greatest ones is the constant media and political dynamic of virtue signaling. There's this dynamic in our culture today where people want to take virtuous or moral stands on particular issues in our time, and yet those issues have no moral grounding in the word of God. False piety. We don't want to be the ones who adds to what God tells us to do in an attempt to appear godly. Pharisees did that. They stood on the street corner and prayed instead of in their homes. Why? False piety. And there are all kinds of ways that we want to appear pious before other people and before God. But false piety leads to really twisted expressions of faith. And so what you see in these three chapters is really the degradation of Saul and his leadership. His son knows it. His soldiers know it. And God knows it. On the inside, Saul is a mess. And yet, as time goes on, more battles are won. More valor is displayed. He stops starving his troops foolishly. And he grows in his military skill. And on the outside, he begins to look pretty good again. And so despite these three stories, we see a summary from the eyes of history. That summary is found in verse 7 and verse 48. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. And wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. And so what do you make of the story? A glowing summary after such terrible descriptions. It reminds us that you can have great success in the eyes of history while failing miserably in the eyes of God. And that's a warning for you and for me. Let's not be like those who are remembered fondly but on the inside with the one who's truly watching, with the ones who know us the best, our complete and utter failures. Let's not be like the ones who pour our lives into our jobs so much so that we abandon our very own children. Let's not be like one of the most famous presidents of our recent history, John F. Kennedy, who is remembered through the eyes of history as a great man and a wonderful president. 
but through the eyes of his wife as a serial philanderer. Or let's not be like Saul, who's remembered through the eyes of history as a valiant warrior king, but in the eyes of God as a distant and self-serving one. You can have great success in the eyes of history, but fail miserably in the eyes of God. And like Saul, there are many ways in which we all fail miserably. (laughs) And like Saul, there is a real enemy. And like Saul, only God can save us from that enemy. And he does so through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the one who forgives us of our sins when we put our faith in him. Do you want to have success in the eyes of God? The only way to have success in the eyes of God is through faith in Jesus. Because that is one of the wonderful works of the cross. That Jesus takes away your sin, your failure, and he takes it on himself. And in turn, he gives you his righteousness. His success of even fulfilling the law. That you may be viewed in this way by your heavenly father. Regardless of how history views you. And this only happens when you put your faith in the Son. He leads you then to a pursuit of faithfulness to God as he molds you and grows you and shapes you and changes you. Because faithfulness without the faith that comes first is not achievable. (laughs) And faith that doesn't pursue faithfulness is not viable. The eyes of human history might tell one thing about your life. But what will the eyes of God He's the one who sees you for who you really are. He's the one who knows your fine points. (laughs) And knows the darkness of your sinful points. And as the one who sees you for who you really are, he loves you anyway. (laughs) So much so that he sacrifices his son to save you. He is the one who calls you to faith and to faithfulness. You can have great success in the eyes of history while failing miserably in the eyes of God. But we learn from Saul that the true approval for your life doesn't come from history. It comes from God and God alone. And may we seek that kind of approval. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Please pray with me. Lord God, we worship you as the God who has infinite power. The power to save and the power to sustain God, we pray today that you would be working all the more in our hearts and our minds and shaping our trust and our affections for you. That you would be deepening the foundations of our faith. That you would allow us to trust you when our backs are against the wall. That we would take your word at its value, at its face value, and seek to obey it carefully.
and that we would not engage in false forms of worship or piety. God, we want to be viewed by you as successful. And help us to know and to feel and to trust that through the Lord Jesus, we actually are. It's in him we rejoice. It's in him that we praise you. And it's in him that we find our standing. 